Hey there, you great and gorgeous goblins. Welcome to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, uh, come check us out over at patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers, where you can find all original adventures, monsters, items, and traps, plus bonus episodes for our actual play sister podcast, Quid Pro Roll, and so much more. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I almost forgot what our podcast name was for a second. Well, last time, I'm, last time it was a Star Wars podcast, so I can't like comp- I can understand that. <laughs> I'm Josh Maltby at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. Uh, I'm Brandon Dingus at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And today we are going to be following up on our previous conversation about the Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars RPG which Brandon thinks will very soon be the Edge Studio Games Star Wars RPG. Well, it's already no longer the Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars RPG. I still think since they developed it, it's going to be under their name. Like, until somebody comes out with a new Star Wars something or other in that, like, system. I I defer to your Star Wars judgment (laughs) until we have proof. (laughs) So we spent most of last time just sort of figuring out the whole situation. So we didn't get to talk about all the juicy stars and wars that you wanted to talk about. It's true. I wanted to talk a lot more about like how the game works and what the mechanics are. And we ended up instead being like, wait, who owns it now? Wait, (laughs) how did it go from that company to that company in like a year? What's happening? (laughs) So... Breaking things down kind of kind of at the basics level. Star Wars Fantasy Flight Games RPG is a tabletop role playing game, of course, but it uses a weird dice system. It's got D20s, D8s, D6s and a single D12. And the way it works is using your skills and the difficulty modifier and then also some of the things like your surroundings. You create a dice pool, you roll it all at once, some things cancel each other out, and then you look at the net result, and that's what determines whether your roll succeeds or fails. Which means you can have rolls that succeed, but with threats. You can have rolls that fail with advantages, and then because there are two special mechanics called triumph and despair, you can have rolls that fail with threats and a triumph and just like there's there's all this all this interesting math that you can do for changing how the particular situation turns out so you'd have a situation like you're trying to fire at this guy but you miss but you get a ton of advantages or a triumph and instead of hitting the guy because you obviously missed you hit like a canister beside the guy that opens up and fills the room with fog and you were at a club and you shot the fog machine the dj doesn't know what to do (laughs) the fog machine overloads and is just like pouring fog into the room at an uncontrolled rate you could absolutely have stuff like that happen that's highly encouraged in this particular game system because It's made to be very cinematic in how it handles combat, how it handles skill checks, all of those sorts of things. So you're encouraged to set things up 
and to allow your players some creative freedom to create things within the battlefield, provided they have the advantage to spend on it. You, you put air quotes around that that nobody can see. So describe describe the I English that you're putting on spend there. Well, I, I, I feel like I put the right tone for air quotes on that so that anyway, that when I'm talking about spending advantage, what I mean is when you roll your dice, you might have like two or three advantage. You can use that advantage in a variety of ways, but more effective things you can do usually cost more advantage all at once. So like if you want to disarm your opponent as part of hitting them, then you have to spend three advantage all at once or one triumph in order to accomplish that because that's kind of a big move because the way Star Wars RPG handles combat, you've got a action, you've got a one free maneuver, and then you can spend strain to get more, which is kind of like a fatigue counter, and then you've got your movement. If your enemy has to pick up their weapon, that means they spend their maneuver doing that, which means they can't do things like take aim to get more dice on their shot or take cover to make it harder to hit them. Mm -hmm. They instead have to waste that time scrambling around in the dirt to pick up their weapon. So really, or, the, the dice pool is just is determining like how much flexibility I have to do anything. Kind of, yeah. And the, the more dice you have, the easier it is for you to subvert more and more powerful characters. Uh, the highest challenge rating you can have is five difficulty dice. And the, the example they have for that is landing a shot on Darth Vader. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is kind of probably the top end of the scale, considering Han, Han Solo shot directly at him and he just took the gun. Yep. Yep. Yeah, he's uh, he's pretty unstoppable as as forces in the Star Wars universe are concerned. Uh. But I really love the way the dice create this cinematic setting for you and encourage the players to go, OK, I may have missed, but I've got a ton of advantage here. Here's what I would like. Hey, if you're playing as a stormtrooper, do you automatically get disadvantage <laughs> on aiming? The way they explain that is that the guns that stormtroopers use are really inaccurate guns. So they just don't they're not good at shooting. So they're just mass produced imperial garbage. Basically, yes. Which is hilarious because in Episode four, Obi-Wan is like, only stormtroopers could have shots so precise when talking about the sandcrawler being destroyed. And it's like, that is not true for the entire rest of the series. You know what? It makes sense if Obi-Wan has just been on Tatooine for like the last 20 years, because the stormtroopers he remembers were the clone troopers who were actually good at their job. Well, except... As I understand it, it was stormtroopers that shot the sandcrawler. <laughs> but they could have had millions and millions of shots and a small <laughs> fraction of them actually hit. You know, it's just a just a numbers game. Eventually, there would have to be some success there. 
<laughs> there's just stormtroopers pointing uh, laser Gatling guns into the sky, hoping to hit parts of the sand crawler. Exactly. Which is literally larger than the broadside of a barn. <laughs> so the dice, the dice are a great start. The careers that are available depend on which core book you're playing from, which, as I mentioned in our previous episode, you do not need all three core books to play. You do get different stuff in each core book. So if you want to play really out there stuff like a distinctly force sensitive uh, Zabrik, which is the race that Darth Maul is. Isn't Darth Maul a hybrid, though? Darth Maul is... He's full Zabrik, but he's got a, like, thing with the Night Sisters going on with him. No, no, no. I He's, um, he's a Dathomirian Zabrik. Yeah, but he's still a Zabrik. Yeah, but, like, Dathomirian is, like, a race, isn't it? I don't think so. I think Dathomir is just a planet, and that's where the Night Sisters are. Hang on. Dathomirian's also known as... Oh, Okay. Oh, they're a subspecies of Zabrak. Yeah, it it's kind of like saying you're a South African human. Like you're 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 not like a whole different person. You're just from a different area. Mm-hmm. But Zabraks are from Iridonia, not Dathomir. Yes, but Zabraks are also commonly used. Okay, in... hang on. I'm on Wikipedia. I've got an answer for this. <laughs> Although most Zabraks lived on Iridonia, some settled on the planet Dathomir, where the females of the species, known as the Night Sisters, ruled over Night Brother males and practiced powerful dark side magic. And female Dathomirian Zabraks lacked the cranial horns shared by the rest of the species. All right. The, the way the dark side force manipulation is shown by the night sisters is very similar to what we would consider middle ages witchcraft mm -hmm. lots of like stirring large po powerful forces in pots and doing a, rituals and things like that a force cauldron i mean kind of yes at least to my understanding if you haven't watched the clone wars animated series by the way go do that it's amazing the only animated Star Wars I cannot stand is the um, Tartakovsky um, Clone Wars animation. All right. I will admit a lot of that is very it's kind of rough because he's clearly doing a Samurai Jack thing with mm -hmm. Star Wars lore. Yeah. But if you haven't seen the Mace Windu fight sequence from that series, it is amazing. It's some of the most ludicrous nonsense, but it's so excellent. I've seen a gif of it before. <laughs> <laughs> the animation style just doesn't hold up for what they were trying to do with that. Like that stuff is fine for Dexter's laboratory, but it did not work for star Wars. I mean, I think it worked fine for Samurai Jack as well, but mm -hmm. where I don't, I don't think that's, I'm sure people have their own opinions on the Jendi Tartakovsky star Wars mini series. Well, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mind it. It stinks. <laughs> there we go. Uh, the critic reference. Achi Machi. <laughs> God. I have no idea how many people are going to get that, but I'm excited to find out. 
in Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars RPG, you you have instead of classes, you have careers. So Edge of the Empire, I pulled the careers just to have examples. You've got bounty hunter, explorer, colonist, technician, hired gun and smuggler. This is something where I think they floundered a little bit because colonist and explorer are both not very good at things like fighting. And so if you're going to have a campaign that runs like a Star Wars movie, you I don't know how much time you're going to spend doing things like negotiating diplomatic ties with other you know, planets. If you're a colonist, you need to know how to fight because inevitably you're going to be out on the outskirts somewhere and they're going to be like bandits and stuff that are coming after you. Yeah, but that's not the direction they decided to take with that particular career. I, I, it'll, it baffles me a little bit. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. Technician feels more like a job rather than a career. (laughs) I'm not sure what the promotion path is there. (laughs) Well, you, you know, you start getting more technical certificates and, uh, you know. (laughs) So the way the way it boils down is basically the career, much like a class in a different game, helps decide what you're good at and what your skills are and how you use those skills and then gives you some features and some subclasses to choose from. The subclasses are called specializations, which I know super original. Mm -hmm. You get your career and your first specialization at the beginning of the game. Like you straight in straight in. You already have kind of your path chosen for you. If you want to multi-class, and have multiple specializations, that is an option. If you want to multi-class and have multiple careers, that is an option. Both of those cost XP, and the XP is doled out via scenario, not via each monster you kill. Mm -hmm. And the GM is encouraged to grant XP based on how the players are playing, what kind of combat they're getting into, how much role-playing they're doing, all of that kind of stuff, like how long the scenario was. I'm a much bigger fan of that kind of, uh, like, milestone leveling stuff rather than just kill monster, get 10 XP. Uh, it just, it's less rich. Kill kill monster, get 10 XP, to me, feels very... I suspect that D&D was where that rooted, mm-hmm. so I was going to say very, like video game RPG, but then I was like, actually, video game RPG probably gets that from D&D. Yeah. So I can only assume that that is a vestige of wargaming. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's probably a pretty fair. That's some that's some good uh, archaeology and ethnology on gaming there. <laughs> Sorry, I got, I, really... I got distracted for a second. We were talking about Star Wars, so I was do- Googling something about Rogue One, and then I found a picture of Felicity Jones with Army Hammer. I was like, oh my God, did he eat her? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so the XP system is based on finishing... They recommend finishing sessions, 
I tended to run it as finishing scenarios because we usually didn't get to sit for even a full three hours at a time often. Mm -hmm. Just because all of us were busy. But what I what I liked about the way that was set up was that I could determine, is this a session where you guys level up or are you guys going to level up next session? You know, is it are you one third of the way to leveling up? Are you halfway to leveling up? How how close are you at any given time? And then I could dole that out as necessary. But the way the XP gets granted, you all don't have to wait to spend it on something large and specific, like getting your next specialization feature. You could spend it on smaller things like stat boosts earlier on. I like I do like the idea of starting out with a specialization because it drives home the idea that like these characters that you're playing have had lives and experiences rather than just starting as like a level one fighter or something where basically you were just a farmer that picked up a sword one day, like maybe three weeks ago and has just decided to go out and start adventuring. I actually have a little bit of a counter argument for that because if you look at how D and D statistics, at least in 3.5, the way they ran the average villager was a 10 at anything they were good at mm-hmm. and lower at literally everything else. Like, like good at farming. Right. Good at farming would be like a 10 wisdom so that your survival's decent. Or maybe a 10 nature so that you know a lot about plants. Villagers being a 10 at like intelligence for nature. They're not particularly good at it from an adventuring standpoint, where most adventurers starting out at level one, you're like a 16 strength. Like you're way outclassing the average villager. And then you've got your skills and specializations there uh, that come with your level one. I think adventurers start out being a little powerful. Mm hmm. And then they become nigh unto gods by the end of the campaign. It stops being fun for me at that point. <laughs> Provided you get up even close to 20. Mm-hmm. Oh, I get that. Like, it's it's hard to write for that level of play. And Star Wars RPG kind of runs into the same thing because there comes a point where they're like, OK, this is the max number of careers anyone can have. This is the max number of specializations anyone can have so that you can't just keep dishing out experience points and they just keep taking everything until they are the every class with every skill it's and every ability it's the silver age superman problem <laughs> you run into this scenario where you hit a certain point in a campaign and it's like it's probably time to start a new campaign mm-hmm. and i think i think that's going to be true of any ttrpg system there's just not you can't have Dragon Ball Z style power growth until you've got players who literally crush planets with a single punch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, what do you do with that? Yeah, you have to start out like without there is no drama without threat. Right. And that's, you know, the same thing happens in the Star Wars RPG. What I really like about the way the XP system is laid out is the specializations each have a skill tree for it Mm -hmm. and you choose what you buy into first and then just like if you were playing a video game rpg 
you can go, oh, I'm going to prioritize this side of the tree because I want these three things before anything else. Yep. Whenever I play Age of Kings, I always play as the Turks and prioritize developing Janissaries and Bombard Towers because that's how you win. <laughs> right. Like if you want to game the system a little bit for those of us that like min-maxing at least a little bit, you have the option to do so. You just, you know, it's built into how your character gets built out. The other thing that Star Wars brings to the table, which really excites me, is the ship combat, because the way it's set up, your ship has its own stats. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of maneuvers and things like that that are affiliated with the ship. And each different player character can take a different role on the ship itself. You can have someone who's running around in the belly of the ship, patching up holes and damage as it appears. You can have, of course, you probably want to have a pilot who is hopefully outmaneuvering the enemy pilot. And then you've got your gunners who are manning weapons and trying to bring these fools down. Great shot, kid. One in a million. But don't get cocky. It's it's this situation where the whole ship becomes kind of the play arena. And then all of your players get to determine, all right, well, I'm good at this stuff and I'm good at this stuff specifically so that I can do these things during, you know, ship combat or during a dungeon adventure or during planet side exploration. And all of the vehicles have these stats, regardless of whether they are a 3D flight like space spacecraft or if they're more of a 2D like a land speeder sort of deal. And it brings this element where, uh, for instance, smugglers tend to use a lot of agility skills. Mm -hmm. And agility is the skill that you use for shooting a ranged weapon. When you're on a ship, agility can be used for uh, not only piloting the ship, but also for firing weapons at enemy ships. So you may not have your highest agility character running the piloting seat because you want them really nailing shots on the enemy craft. And then there's a variety of maneuvers that allow you to do things like take advantage over the other ship or uh, put them in a position where they are trailing you. You know, there's it's a lot to get into, but it's so fascinating to check out because it changed entirely for me how I viewed the concept of running combat when I've got a player like a party that's on something like a sailing vessel. Mm -hmm. Java's pleasure ship. <laughs> I mean, kind of. So the thing it did for me was I came back to 5e being like, oh, my God, when I've got players that are on a sailing vessel, like I could have somebody who's manning cannons. I could have somebody who is sailing. I could have somebody who is guiding the vessel. And it's. There's all these mechanics that you can kind of create on the fly for now we're going to have an epic battle with our ship versus their ship. And it's it's so good. I love it so much. And if you want to see a more formalized version of some delicious sailing rules, uh, you should check out our book Pirates of the Adirondack because the author, Michael, put a lot of work into having sailing rules and roles on the vessel so that 
when you're running around and you're trying to figure out like who's doing what and how are we fighting these people, you have a really comprehensive list of things you can do on a ship to help take out an enemy ship. Turns the ship into kind of a character. Right. Which I love. I'm all about it. I don't know if Ghosts of Saltmarsh does that as well. I suspect it does some. It has some ship combat rules. I can't I can't claim to have read all of them, but they're there. It's one of the books that I have neither picked up nor opened, really. I have so it somewhere. It's in my car, I think. Keeping it close just in case you need it. Yeah, yeah, break it out just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Between all of the mechanics, I feel like what it creates is this system where you have kind of three separate roles in your party. You're on the on the ship role, like whatever you're doing anytime your party is in a vehicle, which it's a space game, so you're going to be in vehicles a fair amount. You're on the ground role where you're, you know, traveling through a desert or a swamp or a rainforest and trying to keep yourself from being eaten by wildlife and the like. And then you're kind of more in an urban or in a dungeon setting where, you know, you're trying to negotiate with people and you're trying to get ahead of people who are trying to track you and you're trying to break into doors and things like that. And I, I just really enjoy having that variety of gameplay all in the same system, because I don't think, I don't think that's something that 5e does much because usually you're either in a dungeon or you're on the ground. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of, I mean, you can, like I said earlier, you can implement sailing rules or you can use the ones that Michael wrote, Mm -hmm. or you can use the one that goes to the salt marsh road. But I like the idea that the actual ghost of the salt marsh (laughs) wrote those rules. I I don't know who the author for ghosts of the salt marsh is. Uh, I know it's a wizard's property, but I assume the author is someone completely different because wizards. Don- it's Donald Nelson Davis, DND. <laughs> oh, man. What if you were right, though? Like, what if we looked it up right now and that's actually the name of the author? That'd be fantastic. That'd be amazing. I'm actually going to look up because now you're making me feel bad for not knowing this person's name. But I really like having that variety of gameplay all within one game where you can kind of explore what it is. Oh, good. Wizards RPG team is the author listed. (laughs) Corporations are people, my friend. (laughs) We can cut all this out, but give me a minute. I guess Ghosts of the Salt Marsh was written by a team of people because I can't find a single author anywhere. So for the Fantasy Flight games, Star Wars RPG, specifically Edge of the Empire, I took a lot of kind of the dice mechanics and things like that, and I brought them out of that game and into 5e when I was running 5e games so that, you know, you've got variable DCs on checks. You've got options for adding more cinematic elements to things like combat. And these are all things I hadn't really thought about at all before playing in that system, because I was like, well, you know, like if there's supposed to be a trap here, then I would write a trap in like, 
you know, if it's going to be falling rocks from up the hill, then there should probably be some kind of trigger that sets off the falling rocks. But, you know, when you get down to it, if you're fighting something like a giant on a mountainside, then just the footsteps of the giant could cause rocks to come loose and create a whole rock slide or a couple of boulders or a wide variety of things. And it makes combat more cinematic and more engaging. And for me, a lot more fun because I can be way more creative with what happens during a given combat scene. And another thing I took from it was if you're going to allow a player to fail, then sometimes give them a little bit of a bone. You know, the wizard tries to shoot firebolt at this creature. They're in a forest. He totally misses. And that's okay. He does hit a tree. That tree is now on fire and the creature is alarmed by the fire and thereby like a little bit distracted. So it makes it a little bit easier for the party to either frighten the creature off or get like surround it, you know, give people more creative options when they're doing things in combat because it makes combat more interesting. And that's I don't think I would have thought of that without this. Yeah, I mean, I enjoy the game. Like I, like I said before, I just think the dice mechanic is a bit needlessly complicated. It's almost like, you know what, D and D is too simple these days. We need to go in the complete opposite direction. <laughs> I mean, the fact that it has, let's see, its advantages and threats, successes and failures, and then. Uh, triumph and despair, which don't cancel each other out, by the way, so you can have roles that have both triumph and despair on them. You're only talking about three different symbols on four different dice. Fourteen individual dice. <laughs> <laughs> All to be parsed. Uh, it does it does sometimes feel like a system that would be better off with a dice rolling app or something like that. Mm -hmm. That At does the, all the quote unquote math for you on it. Right, exactly. At the very least for folks like yourself who do not want to roll an entire fist full of dice and then sort them. Yeah. If <laughs> if somebody came to you and was like, hey, I want to play I want to get started with the Star Wars RPG, formerly held by fantasy flight games uh what would your advice to that person be my advice would be pick up a starter set because they're a lot cheaper than any of the core books and they give you enough of the rules to start play immediately mm -hmm. they even come with a pre-written scenario so that you can run that scenario to see if your group likes it and see if it's your cup of tea because it's pretty quick to get the base rules figured out. It does take a little bit of reading. I would say more reading than D&D, &D, which is mm -hmm. going to be a turnoff for some folks. And I understand that. And mm -hmm. I respect that. Like doing a game should not feel like work at any point. You know, we should develop a game that is passed along solely through oral tradition. Like we have to tell we have to tell people how the game is played and then they in turn will tell other people. So Calvin Ball, we're going to invent Calvin Ball. 
Yes, there will be no you'll never have to buy a source book for it. You'll just have to become like a medieval bard or jongleur that just tell memorizes the beats of the story and tells them over campfires and at court. Perfect. That sounds ideal. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. How much do the starter sets run? Starter sets last I checked were about 25. That's not bad. That's better than one hundred and eighty dollars for all three hardback core rule books. <laughs> well, and the nice thing about the starter set is it comes with one set of the dice, um, the campaign like I was or the, not the campaign, but the scenario like I was talking about. Mm -hmm. It comes with character sheets that are pre-made if you want to use pre-made character sheets. Mm -hmm. And then it also comes with um, a DM screen. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So you're I mean, you're getting a fair amount of stuff for the money. And if you decide that you're just not about it, then turning around and finding a friend who maybe is about it or is also interested in exploring it and passing it off to them probably wouldn't be that hard because the stuff that you get is pretty comprehensive just out of the package. OK. All right. Well, that that maybe changes my opinion a little bit if there's like an easy way to get into it. Let me double check and see if those starter sets are even still available. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you can find them somewhere. Like eBay or something like that. Hopefully you didn't switch the numbers and it's actually like $52 instead of <laughs> 25. I was I was a little bit off. It's $30. OK, well, that's, that's still better. And they that's are, so far as I can tell, still available all right, now, hold on. So I'm looking at it. I did a quick Google search, of course, as one would when they're looking for something. And uh, I see multiple Amazon links. And of course, you know me. I'm not big on supporting Amazon. I'm not huge on supporting Walmart either, but I decided that would be the one link I would click on was a Walmart link. The instant I click on it, the price changes from $30 to 45 Oh, I think I know why the Walmart one is uh, priced higher. If you look, it says sold and shipped by Global Gaming Warehouse uh, slash miniature market. So I'm I'm guessing they probably didn't get it at wholesale. So they're marking it up. It should be back in print here in the near future, which is exciting to me because I really hope more people get into it. Um, it's something that a few people I know are into, but not nearly enough for how much I love it as a system. Mm -hmm. Though part of the problem there is that Fantasy Flight Games has not done a good job of taking care of the creators of that system. Or telling people what's going on, <laughs> since you're allegedly a big fan of this, but you didn't know. Yeah, I was completely in the dark about all of that, which considering it started happening a year ago. Yeah, not a great sign. I think that's everything I've got to say at the very least on Edge of the Empire. Okay. Uh, you've reminded me about little bits of the game that I liked and little bits that I didn't like. But, <laughs> it, well, like, it would be nice to, like, sit down and play it again, like, uh, for a couple days or something like that. And just maybe get a feel for it again. I would want somebody to create my character for me. <laughs> and just sort of goof around. Uh, but, you know, like... Everybody loves Star Wars. I feel like everybody who's like given Star Wars a chance loves it. Uh, it's a nice cultural touchstone that everybody can sort of get in and play, 
even if maybe you don't like um like fantasy rpgs and stuff like that like it's just it's it's a fun way to be part of the universe it's a nice space rpg system even if you're not a big star wars fan there's a lot of material that you can use if you want to or disregard if you don't and just have fun space adventures Mm -hmm. i think that's all we've got uh for this episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast after our marathon conversation about Star Wars. <laughs> um, so we'll catch you all next time for an as yet undetermined topic. Uh, I'm Brandon at Way of Brandalore. And I'm Josh at Black Cloak DM. And we'll talk to you all later. Bye, y'all. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Especially early in the feed, subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way. Thank you.